I want to um, take you back into the Gospel of Mark, this beautiful and powerful and dynamic um, document which has been recorded for us, the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to take you to the 14th chapter of this Gospel, which is, as you know, I'm sure is nearing the end of um, Christ's time here on earth as he's going to be crucified within just a couple of days of um, the events that take place here in this chapter. And every little conversation, every interaction that's led us to this point has been so pregnant with um, power and with uh, a kind of um, pertinence to our understanding of who Jesus is and the way he wants us to respond to him. And I want to read to you um, the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14. The text is below the video. If you Feel free to scroll down if you want to follow along and it will certainly help. Let me read you this then. It says it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him for they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper as he was reclining at table A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, what we are seeing as the moments near, are shortening as we near the end and we near the moment of Christ's crucifixion, what we are seeing here is the effect that Jesus has on people. In a sense, this is one of the great marks of who Jesus Christ is and what he does in the world and what he does to people. And what I mean is this, that he has a polarizing effect upon uh, the situation. Jesus has said to us um, elsewhere in the Gospels, he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And he goes on and describes the way that his life and ministry were being division even that penetrates into family relationships and this is one of the great marks that we see about the life of Jesus one of the defining characteristics that he is in a sense he divides the situation he's polarizing and uh, in that we see this as I've been describing to you in recent weeks we see this in the way that he splits history um, he's like an axe. The Lord Jesus Christ is, if I can say this with reverence, he's like an axe. An axe does has one task, and it's to split wood, and it has brings force to bear on a very narrow point, and it splits wood. And Jesus Christ has split history in two, dividing um, the history of the world from before he was born and after he was born, and we saw all this with the destruction of the temple. He also divides humanity in two, and last week we were talking about his return. And the anticipation that we have of his coming again and that he'll come as the judge of the living and the dead. And in that sense, he will split humanity in two, that he will judge those on his right and those on his left. But what we're seeing here is the way he splits hearts in two, the way he splits people in terms of their reactions and their affections for him. Now, on the one hand, of course, you therefore see this growing hatred toward Jesus, And we've seen this bubble up at moments through the Gospel of Mark, but it's reaching a very climax and a pinnacle here toward the end of this Gospel. And we're seeing how it tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were plotting. How can we arrest this man secretly and kill him without causing the uproar from the people? And of course, at the end of this passage, we find that Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the twelve apostles, um, makes the arrangements possible for this to take place. And so we're seeing that Christ 
presses and pushes people into a state of anger, reaction and hatred toward him that is certainly one of the marks of, of what he does to people. And uh, if you think about the reactions to Jesus in our own day, um, how do we see this? Well, I, I've never met anyone who said to me that they hate Jesus uh, or felt angry towards him as a person. And I think that's largely because people don't really engage with the reality of Christ as we see him in the Gospels anyway. But the way that hatred toward Jesus is typically expressed today is in hatred towards his people, which in the New Testament is hatred toward Jesus. To hate his people is to hate him. When Jesus um, confronts Saul, who's killing Christians, he says, why do you persecute me? So to kill my people is to persecute me personally. And we see this reaction that God's people are often hated in the world because they represent Christ in, in, in the world and they represent the things that he stands for. And so they elicit from humans and from hearts the same, the very same reactions we're seeing here. This polarizing effect of anger and of hatred toward Jesus on the one side. But I'm, we're not going to dwell on that today. We're going to think more about the very opposite thing. Which is, of course, that if Jesus polarizes people to these twin poles of hatred and anger, on the other end is this reaction of love and of adoration and of worship and of cherishing and of delight in who Jesus is. It's very important to note, by the way, that Christ never leaves you in a neutral place. He will press you either to move away from him in anger and hatred or toward him in love and adoration. And I'm interested particularly in this positive reaction that this woman shows to Jesus, this absolute um, adoration that she demonstrates towards him in the way that she worships him on this occasion, not long before he's about to be crucified. I'm interested in this. And the reason why I think this is so important for us is because Christ clearly takes delight in what he's seeing and in what she is expressing. And therefore, it shows us what it is that Christ wants from us as his people. And we see this in how he says about this woman. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. That is the verdict of Jesus. As she engages in this act of worship, of pouring this fragrance all over him and worshiping him in this way, he says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And as people who want to love the Lord Jesus Christ better and to know how to worship him in an authentic and sincere way, way, but most importantly, in a way that brings him pleasure, in which he would say that verdict over us, that he or she has done a beautiful thing to me. We ought to pay very careful attention to what's going on here and the heart and the spirit that's going on underneath it. And then, of course, also Jesus says this about her. He says, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In other words, he puts her up as an example He says to all of you who are questioning, what is it that God wants of me? How am I called to be a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ? He holds her up and says, look, this woman, this woman has demonstrated to to us all what it means to love God, what it means to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he holds her up as an example that you and I ought to pay very careful attention to because this is what God wants of us. This is what God takes pleasure in. And since our greatest call and the the highest mark of obedience in the Christian life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, it seems to me that paying attention to a moment like this is, is perhaps one of the most important things in the Christian life, to understand what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to worship Jesus? And this is what I want us to pay attention to, the way that she worships. And when I use the language of worship there, of course, I'm not using it in the narrow sense that people often do of just singing to God as we do together corporately at church. And that's a very important dimension of worship. But it is only um, the very visible surface level aspect of worship because worship is something that runs through to the core of your being. It's your entire life lived as an offering to God. It's everything you do, everything you say, every motivation of your heart, every action in your life, all of it can be offered to God as worship. And this is the biblical definition of what worship is. And so we're interested in this. What does God want of us? What does Jesus take pleasure in? I want to show you three dimensions of this woman's worship. That it is excessive, that it is undignified, and that it is spirit-led. And I want to help you to see how this forms a model for us. Let me 
show you first the way in which this woman's worship is, is absolutely excessive, even wasteful. And I want to explain to you just the context here of what's going on in this story. Uh, who's Simon, first of all? Simon is hosting this dinner. He's described to us here as Simon the leper. So we can infer a couple of things about him. Uh, we can infer, first of all, that he's no longer a leper because otherwise he would not have been allowed to host a dinner. So he must have been healed by Jesus at some point um, that's not recorded in the Gospels. We also could surmise that this man is known to the church community and was known among the early church community, either because he was still alive when Mark wrote the Gospel um, or because his children or relatives were still alive. And this is important to notice because Mark, uh, for some reason, tells us the name of this man. And there's no reason to, do, to go into that kind of detail unless the readers of the gospel at the time would think, oh, Simon, we know who Simon is. We know where this took place and we know whose, whose house this was uh, happening in. So there's Simon, this man who's known among the early Christians as Simon the leper, a man who's been healed by Jesus and is now hosting him in his house. But then the most important character is this woman. Who is she? Well, we know from John's gospel. Remember John uh, and, and Matthew and Luke, they all told the story of Jesus' life and ministry with slightly different lenses. And John tells this story as well. And he tells us who she is. That she is Mary, the sister to both Martha and to Lazarus. And we know about Mary that um, she is a woman who's marked for her spirituality. And this is particularly obvious in another story that we, we learn about her in the Gospel of Luke, that uh, on one particular occasion, uh, the two sisters, Mary and Martha, invite Jesus for dinner, and Mary rushes off into the kitchen to busy with the preparations and to get the dinner ready, and Mary sits at his feet in the living room and listens to his teaching, and Martha gets irritated with the situation. She says, Lord, aren't you going to tell her to help me? And she's basically saying, it's not fair, Jesus. And Jesus' response is so enlightening. He says about Mary, he says that one thing is necessary and Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So here, on more than one occasion, Jesus holds this woman up as an example of what it means to, to put the Lord Jesus at the center of your life. He, she listens to his teaching. She is very attentive to him. She's deeply devoted to him. And she also then returns that devotion in this kind of love. She's a very spiritual woman. And we know this about her. And we know that she's an example that Jesus holds up to us. And what about this ointment then? Well, it was worth 300 denarii. It's nearly a year's wages. And uh, it was extracted from the root of a plant, a nard plant, which grows in the Himalayan mountains. So many hundreds of miles away across difficult terrain. So you can imagine that this particular um, oil or, that was extracted from this plant was dizzyingly expensive. And uh, in our day and age, um, we, if you go into a fragrance shop, you can, you can select different grades of perfume from an, uh, uh, eau de cologne through to eau de toilette and eau de parfum and all the way up to kind of perfume extract. But they only have a range between sort of 10% and 40% concentration. And what Mark tells us here is this is 100% concentration of this root extracted fragrance. And you wonder, how did she come to possess this item? She was a single woman, it seems. She could not have had the means to earn this kind of cash. So the likelihood is this was a family heirloom, that within her family they treasured this possession of this very expensive item that was there to sell if ever they needed the cash. And here she is uh, breaking it in worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, the, the scene as we understand it. And the thing which I want you to understand about what's going on here is that if you or I were in this situation witnessing what's going on and you see this almost, you know, this dizzyingly expensive object being broken and being poured out upon Jesus, I think you and I would have reacted exactly as the disciples did. Because the simple reason that when, whenever you see waste, it makes you feel frustrated and often angry and indignant, doesn't it? And you think about this is true in the stories we hear and the things that, are, that, that cross our newspapers when you hear of a, uh, a rich heir to a fortune frittering it away through gambling and addictions. It makes you sort of shake your head and think what, a, what an exceptional waste of an opportunity and uh, how undeserved that person was to in inherit these things. Or I was watching a documentary recently about 
a band that was very popular during my teenage years and how in their early 20s as fame, um, as fame kind of swept them up into a brief moment of, of uh, success in their early career, they became rich overnight and they just frittered the whole thing away living in a massive house in California with a giant pool and they just all their money vanished within a couple of years and this story has been played out many, time and time again and those of us who work hard for a living we shake our heads in disappointment and frustration and feel somewhat indignant when you see waste and tell you another story when I was um, when I was young my dad told me about um, one of the possessions he had as a teenage lad so he was into comic books and in the 1960s when he was um, a young kid he'd bought um, editions 1 to 20 of the new comic book character Spider-Man that had come out through this series called The Amazing Spider-Man. And uh, he collected these and enjoyed these and had them in his collection. Now, my grandmother, his mother, is known, was known to us as someone who was a hoarder. If we went to her house, she had stacks of old newspapers that she struggled to get rid of. She didn't seem to be able to throw anything away. But bizarrely, uh, one thing she did throw away was comics 1 to 20 of the original Spider-Man comics, um, which, you know, if I check this morning at how much number one sells for, it's recently sold for $1.1 million. And even um, issues 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and all the way to 20, they're worth hundreds of thousands of pounds each. And so the one, the one thing she should have hoarded, she didn't. She, she tossed it into the trash, and, um, and our family is much the poorer for that. And, uh, you know, if you dwell on this fact, you feel something of the frustration at the waste and uh, even a measure of anger at what could have been. And uh, you just have to dismiss those thoughts as quickly as possible. But you see, this is how all of us would have reacted in this moment when we saw what this woman did. And here's, here's the point that I want to get you to. That true worship will always look like waste. It will always look like this, partly because worship by definition is the offering of something costly to God, and also because the offering of something costly means saying no to other good things that could have been done with the time or the resource or the life that's offered to him. Worship by definition will always look wasteful, and certainly to someone who doesn't believe in God, it is, it is just pure wastefulness. And I want to give you a few earthed examples to just kind of fill out the picture of what I'm talking about here. One of the, let, me, let me talk to you first about singleness. The Bible elevates singleness as a state in which a person can offer their life to God in pure, undistracted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about this in one of his letters to the Corinthians. And he himself was a single man, lived a single life. And those of us who cherish marriage and look at single people in our lives, you may well be tempted to think, well, what a waste. You know, this person could enjoy companionship or they could enjoy the experience of having a family. And yet here they are in this single state. And, what, and so there seems to be that sense of wasted opportunity, the opportunity to love and to be loved and to be in that situation of companionship. And the Bible says, no, 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 that's the wrong way to look at this. This person is offering, they're pouring their life out to God in pure and undistracted devotion to Jesus. Anxious, as Paul says, about the things of the Lord. And so it's an act of worship which to everyone else looks like waste. But to the person and to Christ himself, it looks like a cherished offering. To use an almost a very opposite or contrasting example, you think about raising children. Now in our day and age, it's becoming increasingly uncommon for people to want to have uh, children and certainly to want to have more than a very small number of children. And one of the reasons that's, that's holding folk back, and I'm thinking about the secular world, which unfortunately is being mirrored within the church as well, is the fact that children are costly. And one of the chief ways in which they cost you is in your time and the way in which it, they can, um, they can uh, prevent you from, especially if you are, let's say, a, a full-time mother and you give yourself fully to the raising of your children. It can prevent career advancement. It can prevent uh, you from earning or to fulfilling your ambitions in the world. And people look at that and they think, what a waste. What a waste. Uh, she had so much talent. She had so much ability. She was, more, she was more intelligent than her husband, which, of course, has been often accused of my wife. And, um, and there you see her giving her time and attention to these, these little ones. And, and what's she doing? And it looks like a waste from the outside in. But, of course, what she's doing, she's offering herself to, to God and discipling these children and raising up these arrows, as the, as the Psalms put it, to be sharp and in the hands of a warrior to be fired in battle. 
And of course, this is an act of worship to God. Another example is to, to maintain integrity in business. If you want to have integrity in your work environment, in cer- certain occasions, and I've heard numerous stories to illustrate this, it will mean lost opportunity, lost promotion, lost uh, profits. Uh, and people will look and say, what a waste. But to offer God your, your, your service is integrity and to say, God, I'm doing my work as, as an act of worship to you. And, and I don't care about the advancement. I don't care about my ambitions. I don't care about where you put me in life. I want to offer my work as a worship to you. God looks at that as worship and it is more valuable to him than the person who succeeds by devious ends. Think about missions. An example which touches a minority of lives in the church, but which does touch people in a very significant way. When somebody gives their life as on the mission field, and uh, certainly this is perhaps more true in days gone past, they might disappear into, into oblivion. They might have a one-way ticket. They might vanish on the mission field. They might experience that their life was shortened. There were countless stories of some of the early missionaries and the wave of missions that took place, particularly during the Victorian era, of people who went to share the gospel in distant lands and of them dying early of disease in very in unsanitary conditions or without adequate nutrition. And uh, all of you know the examples like Jim Elliot, who um, you know with his his friends they pulled up a boat onto the shore in Ecuador, and within moments were were um, were slaughtered by the Orca Indians, the uh, native uh, tribespeople who killed them, and they were only in their late twenties at the time. And you think, what a waste! What an absolute waste of a life! What a waste of talent! Especially given the fact that we know that what few writings of Jim Elliot's are left were priceless. What if this man had lived? What if he'd endured? Um, years of service to God. They say, what an absolute waste. And Jesus looks at it and says, what a, what a cherished offering to God. Let me give you one more example which touches all of our lives. What about holiness? When you choose to live a life of holiness, you are saying no to many opportunities of pleasure and potentially fulfillment in the here and now, or temporary fulfillment, I should say. And people look at it and they say, what a waste. What a waste that that person won't indulge. What a waste that that person won't maximally enjoy themselves in the here and now. But the person who wants to live a holy life for God is offering their life to him in worship. And therefore, that waste is okay. That waste is acceptable because you're saying, my life belongs to God entirely. So what I'm trying to help you see is that what is symbolized here. It's true of all of us in whatever your circumstances and situation. When you offer something costly to God, to the outsider looking in, it will always look like waste. Because they say, this could have been used for this. This could have been used for this. And this is what the disciples do. They say it's a waste. They accuse it of, they say that explicitly. They say this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. And they scolded her. The language is that they snorted down their noses at her like horses. They kind, of, they kind of despise it. They feel very angry with what's going on here. And Jesus' reaction is completely the opposite. He says, this is beautiful. I think the way we ought to understand this story <clears throat> is she breaks this flask and pours this ointment out before Jesus. In a sense, the flask is a symbol of the life of the believer. She cracks it open. It's an irreversible act. She's she's set her heart, she's set her mind to say, Lord, I'm going to offer this to you completely. And it's a symbol of how we're meant to worship Jesus. It's meant to be excessive. It's meant to be wasteful. To offer yourself to him completely. It reminded me of this line that Paul writes toward the end of his last letter, the letter that he wrote to Timothy, the second letter he wrote to Timothy. And it seems to have been written not long before he's put to death uh, by the authorities. And he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The drink offering was one of the practices that would take place in the temple worship. They would take wine and waste it on the ground in front of the altar, pouring it out as an offering to God. And he's saying, that's the image of my life. It's poured out. But Paul isn't saying, feel sorry for me. He's not saying that this is a waste. He's saying, here I am, I'm about to be put to death for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the opposite of a waste. It's an offering. It's a sacrifice. It's an excessive, full, complete sacrifice of my entire life offered up to him in God. And I want to suggest to you that that is exactly what Christian worship is about. It's taking what is precious to you, your very life, your possessions, who you are, 
and offering it to God as without with no holds barred. It's excessive. Now let me show you also a second aspect of this. That this woman's worship is undignified. It's undignified. Now the act as it takes place in this house on this particular day at this dinner party, it has the feeling of being inappropriate and even being embarrassing. And partly this is just because it breaks certain cultural sensibilities. Um, at the particularly male gathering like this, it was considered inappropriate for a woman to intervene and to disrupt the proceedings in this way. But even laying aside that, that aspect for a moment, the very thing she did is quite bizarre when you imagine it. Uh, pouring this, dousing this oil all over Jesus so that he is saturated with, this, with this, this liquid and filling the house with a fragrance so that you could hardly enjoy your food at this point because it's such a pungent aroma in the atmosphere. And John tells us in his account of the story that she then used her hair to wipe his feet with it, like washing his feet with her hair. And you think how this oil must have just been everywhere and, and just looks so out of place and such an undignified act as she's no doubt crying and worshipping him and he is there. Now, I, I'm a person who has a very low threshold for embarrassment and for awkwardness. I easily feel embarrassed and my wife will tell you on the couple of occasions when she's arranged surprise birthday parties for me, one of the things that everyone said afterwards was how awkward I looked and how it made them feel awkward that I was so awkward. And so it achieves the very opposite reaction to the one that my wife would have hoped for, which is joy and happiness. It makes me feel very embarrassed. But here's Jesus, and this thing is happening to him. If I put myself in his shoes, I would feel intensely embarrassed. Jesus doesn't feel like that. In the dignified nature in which he conducts himself, he receives this worship and honors her for the way that she's acting. And I find this to be very provocative for us, the undignified nature of her worship. Now, I just want to make a quick aside here and just comment on the male-female dynamic of what is going on here, because this is part of the the picture. On numerous occasions uh, through the Gospels, you find Jesus in these interactions which were culturally considered inappropriate with various women. You have him talking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, who's had five husbands, and now she's living with a man who isn't her husband, and he's talking to her Uh, alone, as a man talking alone to a woman by a well, this is considered inappropriate. But Jesus is happy to engage in this conversation. You find a similar situation to the one here in Mark 14, as in Luke 7, where a woman who's called a sinful woman, so she's probably a prostitute, worships Jesus in a similar way to the way Mary does here. And Jesus is happy. In fact, he commends her. And then, of course, there's this story. And so we find on these various occasions the way that Jesus interacts with women that breaks the cultural mold and tells us something. And we know that he's teaching us something about the dignity of the women. We know that he's teaching us something about his love and cherishing of them within his kingdom and the way that they had been um, overlooked and, and, and disparaged within the economy of God. And I think this is very important for us to pay attention to. And we ask the question, what is he teaching us? And on the one hand, we can thoroughly affirm that Christ... Um, completely breaks the, the model of masculinity, which is today is described as toxic masculinity, and that he's not disparaging of these people. He's not inappropriate to these women. He's not uh, abusing them in any way or ignoring them or overlooking them in any way, but he cherishes them and gives them their due attention and honors them in a way that, which was absolutely unheard of at the time. And so we know that he avoids that kind of toxic masculinity, as the phrase is used today. But then on the other hand, when I read these stories, I, it's impossible to escape the fact that he also avoids fitting the modern notion of what we would want him to do in terms of um, being the kind of fighting for the kind of e- e- equality or the egalitarianism which is championed in our day. Christ is not doing that. We find him with 12 male apostles, commissioning them as the leaders of his church. We find him very happy to accept the service of the women in the various dinner parties that he's going to. So he's not in any way explicitly breaking the the cultural norms that were there at the day. And in fact, he seems to enforce them in certain ways. And uh, this, you have to pay close attention to this. And you ask the question, well, what then is he teaching us? And it seems to me that when you think about these stories and you think about the way these women uh, have a lasting impact, Christ elevates them to a place of a mighty influence within the church of God. 
but not by them assuming the same roles as the men in the, in the church of God. And I think particularly of the, this story also of, we read just a few weeks ago, the story of the widow who offers her two mites at the temple and how Jesus points to her example as a living and vivid example of, of, this, uh, of, of, of somebody who offers uh, their, their finances to God completely and without reserve and has faith in God. And we see this with this woman here, how she worships Jesus with the pouring out of this nard. Jesus is very happy to elevate these women, but not by putting them in the same position or the same roles, the precise same roles as the men in the story. And it seems to me that the, one of the lessons that we need to draw from this, for women at least, is that in many ways it's your difference that Christ cherishes. It's the distinction that he cherishes. And that it's no good, as is often the agenda at work today, to simply make men and women interchangeable in the ways that we live and act and the roles that we play in life. That's not the point of the Gospels, and it's certainly not the point of Christ's ministry. But rather, it's their difference. And, it, you know, if you put it the other way around, it's very hard for us to imagine a man doing what, what Mary is doing. It's very hard for us to imagine a man doing this and, and, and pouring out his heart in this kind of worship in the way that she does. And it strikes me that it's the very difference that is elevated and which is cherished by Christ and which we need to, we need to dwell on and think about more. Now, I want to return to this theme of, of the indignity of the act. When you read this story, it reminds me of King David, who um, there's, a, there's an account given to us in 2 Samuel and chapter 6 of how the Ark of the Covenant, that great and holy item that should live at the heart of Israelite worship in the tabernacle, had been taken by the Philistines, their enemies. And after it had been recovered, one of David's tasks was to bring it back to its rightful place within the tabernacle. And as they're making the journey back towards the tabernacle, and the men are carrying it on poles, um, every six steps, they're slaughtering an animal, and David is dancing the whole way. He's dancing, and this is what uh, we're told about him. It says that he danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, he points to that little detail there because the linen ephod was his underwear. He's in his tighty whities dancing before the Lord and shouting, it says, with the, and the sound of the horn was blasting. And his wife, Michal, is looking out of the window as they're making their approach towards Jerusalem, And it says she despised him in her heart. She looks upon David dancing in his underwear and she feels anger coming up in her heart. It reminds us of the anger that we're seeing here of the disciples as they witness Mary's worship. And she treats him sarcastically. She says, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of the servants and so on. As the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncover himself, she says. And David's response is very important. He says, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father, her father was King Saul, and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel. He says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. These are very important words, and I think they shed light on what it is that Christ loves about this woman's worship. What is it that they both have in common, David and uh, Mary, as they worship God? It's the fact that they have this overwhelming love for the object of their worship. For David, he is so loves the Lord that as he dances in front of this ark, he says, it was before the Lord that I worshipped. And he says, I'll become even more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. Sometimes it's translated undignified. I'll become more undignified than this. And the same is true of Mary. We know Mary is this woman who Jesus says chose the better portion when she sits at his feet to listen to his teaching. She loves him so much that she is quite willing to um, disregard the opinions of those around her and just to do what is necessary to offer him worship. And so she becomes undignified in this instance as she pours this oil on her. She weeps and wets and, and wipes his feet with her hair. I think that the, the two situations are very similar. And it seems to me that what we're describing here in terms of this love for God, this, this overwhelming love for God, which is the calling of God's people, will have two effects on you. The first is it will make you numb to the opinions of other people. We see this with David. I'll, I'll be abased in your eyes. I'll become even more contemptible or undignified than this. It will make you numb to the opinions of other people because when you love God with everything that you are and all that you have, 
The love for God overwhelms the fear of man. It overwhelms the, the desire to please people. It makes you numb. And the other effect, of course, is the reaction that you'll always encounter, which is that people will always be uncomfortable with this passionate love for God. It always makes people feel uncomfortable. They view it as a form of fanaticism. They view it as, a, as being over the top. And partly I think that's because people feel chastised when they see this kind of love in someone else. They feel like their own love is inadequate. And then they get defensive, like the disciples, snorting down their noses at this woman, at Mary. Like the disciples, people feel, they feel a reaction inside them, like surely not. This is the kind of thing that you always see when someone loves God with all their heart, soul and mind. They'll create that reaction all around them, but they don't care. They're numb to it because of their love. I want you to think lastly about the way that this woman's worship is also spirit-led. I've described for you how it's excessive, how it's over the top, and how it's undignified, and that Christ takes delight in this. I want to bring out one final element, which is it is also spirit-led. Because if you ask the question, why did she do this particular thing? Like, what came into her mind that she thought, I know what I'll do? And she went into her house and rooted around and found this, this priceless object and brought it very intentionally, very deliberately, smashed it and poured it all over Jesus and thus wiped out the family's um, savings or heirloom in that moment. What is it that went through her mind? Why did she do it? And I'll tell you it's that in one sense we don't know because it's not that this was a recognized form of worship. It wasn't that there are examples in the Old Testament of this being a, a recognized pattern of worship. It wasn't like that. It was kind of unprecedented. And it's not that there was any Old Testament prophecy about Jesus being worshipped this way that she was self-consciously fulfilling. There was nothing like that that we can explain to account for her actions on this particular day. So what was it then? And I think... The only way that we can really understand what was going on here is that it was something prompted by and led by the Holy Spirit in that moment. And I think this is clear from the way Jesus assesses her action. He says in verse 8 that she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now typically, of course, the body would be anointed after they've died, not before. And Jesus is being anointed here prior to his death, which is why I say that this is a prophetic act. It's a spirit-led act because what she's doing is prophetically anointing him in view of the fact that he's going to die rather than the fact that he has already died. It's a spirit-led thing. Now the question then is, well, did she understand what she was doing? Did she, did she full understand or grasp fully the significance of her action? And I think the answer is, is doubtful. I think it, the answer is most likely no. And I say this because on various occasions in the Bible, when people engage in these prophetic acts, they often do not understand the full implications of the thing that they're doing. So when Noah built his ark to save his family from the flood of God's judgment, I, that stands in all of Scripture as a pattern for salvation. God's judgment will come upon the earth like a flood. You better be within his plan and purposes. You better be saved. You better be inside the ark, which for us... And the New Testament means to be in Christ, to be saved by Christ. He is the ark, of the, the ark who saves us. Did Noah understand all the implications of his actions on that day, that it was prophetic? I don't think so. Same is true of Abraham offering up his son Isaac. You know the story of how he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah and was about to slaughter him in obedience to God. And then God provides a ram stuck in a, bu stuck in a bush. And as the ram is, is retrieved from the bush, the ram replaces the son on the altar. So it teaches us about the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is happening right at the earliest pages of the Bible. And it shows us what God's plan was to be thousands of years later, when God would give the ultimate substitute, the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross so that we would not have to receive the judgment of God. Did Abraham understand the full significance of his act that day? I don't think so. I think this is the nature of prophetic acts. I don't think that we could say with any confidence that Mary really knew what she was doing. But I think we can say this, that she knew she was obeying the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in that particular moment. And I think that's a great challenge to us. John Calvin, who preached on this back in the 1500s, said this, that she was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this in duty to Christ. God prompted her to do this act as an appropriate way 
of honouring Jesus as he's about to be crucified. Now what does this have to teach us then about our worship? I think there's a general point and a narrow point and I want to start with the general. The general point is this, that there is no true worship without the work of the Spirit in your life. All worship is a response to God's Holy Spirit moving your heart to love him. And Jesus said about worship, he said in John 4, that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit has to work in our hearts because without his work in our lives, we are dead to the things of God. The Bible diagnoses our condition spiritually as being dead in our sins and slave slave to the the powers of this world. God has to breathe on your heart. He has to breathe on your heart to bring you to life. If you do not love God and you don't know how to love God, the answer is you cannot love God unless God's Spirit begins to move in your heart to bring you. And what the Bible describes is going from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. This is the experience of what it means to be born again, of what it means to become a Christian. The Holy Spirit has to blow on your heart and to bring about a spiritual life within you that will transform you into someone who loves God above all things. And of course, this, act, this work continues in the life of the believer throughout their life, that the Spirit keeps moving on them to put to death their idols and to worship God in spirit and in truth. And always, when we find our hearts cold to the things of God, when we find that we are, we've grown spiritually crusted and encrusted with hindrances and sins and temptations or just apathy toward God. What we need is the wind of the Spirit to blow on us again. And this is what we long for always in the life of our church, in the life of our people and in our own hearts, that the Holy Spirit will bring about sincere and authentic love for God. Because if we love God, everything else will get into place. The one thing we need above all is the love of Jesus. When we love Jesus, it's easy to kill sin. When we love Jesus, it's easy to offer him our lives. When we love Jesus, it's easy to serve his people. It's easy to give of our finances. It's easy to to, uh, live every conscious moment in his presence. It's easy to pray. In other words, it's easy to worship when love is present. And the Spirit brings us about in us. That's the general point. And I want to encourage you, open your heart up to the work of the Spirit again. But the, the narrower point is this, that part of the calling of the Christian is to walk by the Spirit. That the Spirit is actively communing with your spirit. And that part of your privilege of being a child of God is that the Spirit lives in you and, and, and stirs you and moves you and leads you. And part of what it means to walk by the Spirit in day-to-day life is obeying His impulses and promptings. Listening to His voice or obeying the nudgings and the ways that He, he moves you to live and act to bring pleasure to God. I'll give you a few examples of what I'm talking about besides this beautiful example here in this gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was speaking to pastors, he encouraged them to obey every impulse to pray. And his point was this, that prayer isn't always easy. You don't always feel like praying. And if you have a certain time in the day when you set yourself to pray, what you'll quickly discover is that not every day do you feel like praying in that particular moment. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't set a time or that you shouldn't uh, have a discipline about the thing. But he said, obey every impulse to pray. And what he was saying was this, that there are moments in in your day when the Holy Spirit will prompt you to pray. And he's saying, capitalize on those moments when the Spirit is on you. Go and find a quiet corner. Go and find some privacy and respond there and then. Drop everything that you're doing and pray because you'll experience more reality in that prayer. And, And your prayer will achieve something before God. The Spirit is moving you for a reason. And I think that's an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, that the worship we offer to God ought to be spirit-led. Another example is in the arena of, uh, of money and of finance. There's a beautiful story in Exodus chapter 35. The Israelites who'd been rescued from Egypt and who are traveling around in the wilderness, um, they want to build a tabernacle, a tent, for the Ark of the Covenant and in which will be the focal point of their worship. But in order to build this thing, it needs finance because it's going to be made of the most costly materials. It's going to be made with gold and bronze and various um, threads and made by these exceptionally gifted craftsmen. And the altar will be made and so on. And so what they need is they need money. They need people's possessions. It tells us in Exodus 35 
that they, they asked the people to contribute. And it says, they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Now, this is another example of the very thing I'm describing. The reason why these people are willing to give generously to God is because the Spirit is moving on their heart. It's a free will offering. It's not that God has said to them, you must, uh, you know, that there is a specific amount that the, every person in Israel must give. But everyone just has their own conscience before God. It's another example of the way we worship. Let me give you one last example. I mentioned this story to you last week, I think, of the Apostle Paul saying goodbye to the elders of the church in Ephesus and explaining to them why he was willing to travel to Jerusalem where they know he's going to be arrested and persecuted. And how he says to them, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. There it is again, the action of the Spirit moving him, leading him, prompting him. He says, I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. There is an example again of a man who, you know, defies logic. He's going to the very city where he knows his life is going to potentially be cut short because he'll be arrested and put under, um, on trial. But he's going there because he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. And it's very much a similar thing to the action that Mary takes here. There's nothing logical about what she does. It defies common sense, the pouring out of this treasure before Jesus. But she's constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is moving on her heart and she cannot deny the leading and initiation of God in this moment. Now, what I've tried to describe to you is the heart of the worshipper and the authentic way in which Christ calls us to worship, how he calls us to worship in, in this wasteful and excessive way and how... There ought to be a disregard for our dignity in the doing of of that worshipful act and how we need to follow the leadings of the Spirit. I want to say one final thing to you before I close. That all of these things were true of the Lord Jesus Christ and particularly in what he's preparing for here in this moment as he's journeying toward the cross. When he went to the cross, the offering of himself to God was the ultimate of an excessive and wasteful offering because the most important man who ever lived, his life was cut short in its prime. And you think, how could this be the plan of God? It just seems to defy logic. It seems to defy common sense. Why would God waste the life of his son in this way? And of course, the answer is that this is the very reason why it's precious to God and why the cross matters. And also, there was a lack of dignity in the way that Christ worshipped there and offering himself on the cross. We know that he was stripped down so that he was practically naked and he was flayed by whips, he was bleeding, he was subjected to the shame of bearing our sin upon himself on the cross. And again, all of this, motivated by his love for the Father and his love for us as his people, he went to the cross and suffered the indignities of that action because of love. And of course also we can say that he was led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said on numerous occasions that he was obeying the Father. For example, in John's Gospel, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And we know that he self-consciously and deliberately was moving towards and journeying towards Jerusalem, where he will be crucified by the authorities. And he's, knew, he's told the disciples on many occasions, just leading to this very moment in Mark's Gospel, he's told them he's going to die, that it's God's plan for him to die. He's led by the Spirit, and he offers himself obediently to God. And so it seems to me that if Jesus is the ultimate model for us of this worship, of lavish worship, wasteful worship, undignified worship, spirit-led worship. If he is our ultimate example in in the, the giving of himself for us as an act of love so that he could save us, our worship is just a response and an echo to his worship. Just as Mary modeled for us here, she is responding to the initiating love of Jesus. Jesus had, had saved Mary and now Mary was grateful and she comes and worships him in response. And friend, there is nothing in your life that is, that is so important that you must hold it back from Jesus. He has purchased you by his blood. He went to the cross for you and he poured himself out for you. And this is why the Christian holds nothing back. This is why the Christian 
allows their life to be cracked open like the alabaster flask here and poured out as an offering to Jesus. Everything we have, every gift, every moment of our time, every desire, every ambition, every, um, every resource, all that we are, all that we have, everything offered on the altar to the Lord Jesus Christ as a, res- as a response, as an echo to his great love for us. And this is what I want to urge and encourage you to do. Are you offering yourself to him? Is he the main desire and object of your affection? Do you love him? Let me pray now. I'm going to invite Jono and Michelle to lead us in the response. I want us to pray that the Spirit will move on our hearts to worship in this way and to be led to be worshippers like Mary, to bring Christ pleasure. Why don't you, if you want to, just open your hands and ask the Spirit to move in your life and open your heart also and just say, Lord, help me. Father, we want to come to you now and we acknowledge the weakness of our affections, the inadequacy so often of our worship in the day-to-day sense, Lord, that our love for you is changeable. It's up and down. Our devotion is not consistent. There's often parts of us that we want to withhold, whether through fear, whether through lack of trust, or selfishness, or pride, all kinds of reasons why we fail to come to you in a complete sense. But Lord, we are provoked and challenged by Mary's example, and of course by the example of Jesus himself. How complete was the offering. And I ask you, Lord, that the Spirit will move on our hearts. I know that we can't force ourselves to love you the way Mary did. We need you to move in our lives, Lord. But insofar as it calls upon us to choose you, to obey you, to act and to love you in a deliberate way, we pray, Lord, help us to do so. Help us to be people who hold nothing back, who delight in you and consider you to be the great treasure of our lives. And I ask this in the precious name of your Son, our Saviour. Amen.